And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome back to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. I am your horn-headed host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. This is the podcast that looks at the comic book adventures of Marvel's blind lawyer by day and man without fear by night, Daredevil. And the show was back after a hiatus that got out of control. And I do sincerely apologize for that. Long story short, I had creative issues. I just completely fell out of the groove, and it took me a long, long time to get back into it. But finally, I got myself back in sync and found my horn-headed happy place once again, and that brings us to this week's episode, which should be continuing the Frank Miller run on Daredevil, but that isn't where I ended up going. For some reason, I suddenly developed this fascination with the yellow era of Daredevil, that formative period that I gracefully rushed right by in the first two episodes of the show. So instead of covering material that matches up with Season 2 of Daredevil, I'm looking at the origins of the Man Without Fear in the most formative period in his career. And I know what you're thinking. Dave, you already covered the first six issues of Daredevil. How do you plan on covering the Yellow Period? Well, thankfully, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale supplied us with a six-issue miniseries looking at that time period. That's right, this week begins a six-episode look at Daredevil Yellow, a nice look at the beginning to get the show back into the flow of things. Before that, a quick note. The format that I tried out during the Death of Gene DeWolf episodes just was not working for me. It was a bit awkward, it didn't have the form I need from a week-to-week basis, and it made editing take forever. So this week, it's back to the original format that worked oh so well for the first 69 episodes or so. I know it's a little plain, but if it works, it works. And that's where we find ourselves, so I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo for All-Star Comics Review, and then I will be right back to talk Daredevil Yellow number one. Hey there, my name is Al Gerding, and I have a favor to ask. If you're a fan of the Justice Society of America or other DC Comics Heroes of the Golden Age, please listen to my new podcast, The All-Star Comics Review. Grab your reprints, DC Archive editions, or the original comics if you're lucky enough to own them, and let's explore the adventures of the JSA and other Golden Age greats. Follow along with the All-Star Comics Review podcast, now found on iTunes, allstarcomicsreview.blogspot.com, and Facebook. And we are back to take a look at the mini-series event Daredevil Yellow by the now-famous creative team of Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. Jeff Loeb, a former Hollywood screenwriter, first teamed with Sale for the 1991 relaunch of DC's Challengers of the Unknown, a partnership that lasted for eight issues. That partnership went to the next level with the 1996 miniseries Batman the Long Halloween looking at the Dark Knight's early days. 
and the two would continue exploring the early adventures of DC's Man of Steel in the 1998 miniseries Superman for All Seasons. The duo are well known for their retro tales of superheroes, primarily Marvel's heroes, such as Spider-Man in 2002's Spider-Man Blue and the Hulk in 2003's Hulk Grey. This trend even continued this very year with Captain America White finishing the string of what has become known as Marvel's Color Books, an ironic title since Tim Sale is actually colorblind. But Hulk, Spidey, and Cap all follow the team's first Marvel Color Book, 2001's Daredevil Yellow, which brings us right to the doorstep of this week's issue, Daredevil Yellow Number 1, which came to us with an August 2001 cover date. Speaking of cover, this features a cover by Tim Sale. In the cover, Jack Murdoch walks with his hand on the shoulder of a very young Matt Murdoch past the entrance of Fogwell's gym. In the background, Daredevil, wearing his familiar yellow costume, raises a hand as a nearly spectral figure in the sky. Notably, there is something very idyllic about this cover. The yellow color scheme lends itself to the sepia tones we associate with flashbacks, and I really hate to make this reference, but it is right here in front of me. It evokes the idea of a golden age. And that's not just a certain time frame from a comic book publication standpoint, but a place where the characters find themselves. An ideal spot in life, which is going to be a theme this week. That feel extends beyond the characters and into the neighborhood, which looks clean, but not pristine. It looks lived in, but not run down. And this cover just works on that level. As for the story inside, it is entitled The Championship Season, written by Jeff Loeb, with art by Tim Sale. That team is fleshed out with colors by Matt Hollingsworth and letters by Wes Abbott. This and every other issue in the series are reprinted in the Daredevil Yellow trade paperback and hardcover, as well as on Comixology in the Marvel app and Marvel Unlimited. With that, let's open up the cover and look at the first part of Daredevil Yellow, number one. In the present, the red-suited Daredevil leaps across rooftops, writing a letter in his head to the recently deceased Karen Page. Daredevil ends up at Fogwell's gym, where his mind drifts back in time to his college days, rooming with Foggy Nelson and watching his dad win boxing match after boxing match. His mind drifts to another memory. While out to dinner with Foggy and his father, Matt recalls the signs of Jack's eventual downfall. The scent of the fixer on Jack's money. And with the loom of doom over everything, let's put a pause on the narrative and talk about this very short section of the story. These opening pages introduce a lot in terms of style and the fabric of the narrative by way of Matt's letters to Karen Page. This takes place after Daredevil Volume 2, Issue 5, in which Karen took a billy club to the chest, courtesy of Bullseye. So, suffice it to say, Matt's a bit off balance. The first lines, Dear Karen, I'm Scared, pretty much clue us right into Matt's mindset, and this sequence of Matt visiting Fogwells isn't just a narrative device, it's a justification for the story. The fact that the series is called Daredevil Yellow, and it opens with Matt saying he is scared, isn't a coincidence as far as I can tell. It's poetic, and it's using the color of fear for a tale of Matt facing his fears. I love that this opening sequence features a grayscale background with Daredevil's red duds representing the only real color on the page. To me, this signifies two things, though probably not simultaneously. One, the color and the joy have been drained out of Matt's life following Karen's death. The food has no taste, the air has no scent, the world is bleak. And secondly, that Matt, for the moment, isn't fully in the present. He's going through the motions, but his heart lies somewhere else, and that might be a place beyond his grasp at this time. And then there's the state of Fogwell's gym, completely dilapidated, but with equipment still in place and posters on the wall from the past, representing where Matt is. He's broken, and he can't move on. Matt strokes a poster of one of his father's fights, and it's clear. Whatever he needs to move forward lies in the past. Now allow me to segue for just a moment on a small tangent. In researching this issue and putting it up against the original first issue of Daredevil, I was able to spot something that I had never noticed before. 
When opening Daredevil number one to the first page, and to be more accurate, the first story page, the very first panel is the doorway to Fogwell's gym. On the doorframe in that panel, there are a series of posters that I never took a second glance at until now. One poster advertises a fight between Romero and Carson, and more research showed that this was an actual fight that took place in England back in 1950. This was Luis Romero taking on Eddie Carson, with Romero taking the win. The most striking element of this fight and its inclusion in Daredevil number one is that both boxers were left-handed, also known as Southpaw. Cast that up against the other poster. This one is for Benny Leonard. Benny Leonard was a real fighter from New York who won the lightweight championship in 1917 and retired a short time later. But when the stock market crashed in 1929, he lost his fortune, forcing him to come out of retirement and fight once again. Remember, this is in the original first issue of Daredevil from 1964, and whether the idea that Jack was Southpaw and Age was inspired by this or a coincidence is unknown. However, that little detail adds something to the world that Jack inhabited, and bridges it to our own. And of course, were is the operative word here, since we see Matt remembering his father, which flows back to his college days. Suddenly, much like the Wizard of Oz, we are in a Technicolor world, an inverse of how flashbacks are normally depicted. Matt and Foggy's dorm room is a warm, bright yellow, while the New York skyline is a cool blue with grays for the buildings. It's not randomly that Matt goes back to this point in his life, or remembers it as brightly as it is. It would be obvious in a retelling of the origin to go back to the promise to Jack to hit the books, or to the accident that took Matt's sight. But these aren't Matt's happy places. In fact, the promise resulted in being bullied, and the accident hurt, and brought new challenges. No, no, this... To bring up some of the commentary from the cover is Matt's golden age. Let me elaborate a bit. Matt is studying at Columbia Law School, one of the most prestigious law schools in the United States. And he earned his way there by keeping his promise, justifying all of those slings and arrows from the bullies. Also, Matt has a friend in Foggy, probably one of his first good friends since his diligence to his studies and later his blindness alienated him from the other children in his neighborhood. Matt seemed to flourish in college, even having a romance with that Greek girl. What was her name? Simultaneously, Jack is moving through the boxing world, winning fights, ranking up, and getting respect. In a nutshell, both are where they want to be and are getting what they set out for. It is actually the best of times, a golden age for those two where nothing can go wrong. But hindsight is what we are dealing with, so while Matt is remembering the good times, it is with the inevitable fall in mind that he is revisiting them. This college scene may seem original, but it's actually an analog to a similar scene in Daredevil number one, which brings up another important idea for this in the following five issues. Because we are getting these recollections directly from Matt's memory, that makes it suspect at times. This scene is the epitome of that. Perhaps this dialogue took place in the dorm room, as we see here. Perhaps Matt only remembers it occurring here when it actually happened on the campus grounds. Whether intentionally or not, Loeb has given himself a license to rearrange events and play with a narrative of his very own. Basically, what it feels like is a subtle way of saying, don't overthink this and nitpick it, just sit back and enjoy the ride, because yeah, that's what I do, right? Let's be honest, if I was sitting back and enjoying the ride, this episode wouldn't be happening. Anyway, moving from this scene, the issue goes to a night out to dinner with Matt, Foggy, and Jack, a scene that is original and not in Daredevil number one, our first for the series. Loeb makes Jack ridiculously likable. Jack shakes a ketchup bottle and it squirts on some nearby girls when he opens it. A bit of clumsiness to the normally stern Jack that we know. There are two main hooks to this scene. The first is an idea that Matt presents. Matt says that being with his father is like having Jack's heart beating inside of Matt's own body. That represents two things. One, that Jack's physical presence is a powerful one. But secondly, and more telling, Matt and Jack have a bond. 
Yes, they've butted heads as fathers and sons do, but there was a physical representation to that bond in Matt's sense register. Jack's presence is felt in the adventures of Daredevil, whether it be inspiration or burden, and this is a character that has appeared on precious few pages over the last 50 years, and yet he manages to loom over the entire series. And that is logical. At this stage, Matt believes that his mother's name was Grace and that she is dead. Matt was alienated from his peers by his decision to keep the promise he made to Jack. Jack represents his first and arguably his only piece of human connection until he got to college and met Foggy. Therefore, not only is the emotional attachment clearer, so is the physical proximity, as well as the time that would be invested to make his senses notice Jack on this level. The second thing put on the table, no pun intended, in this scene comes at the very end when Matt recalls smelling the fixer's cheap cigars on the money that Jack takes out of the wallet. Here is the idea of hindsight, the idea that it was all in front of him and he didn't take the opportunity to change the outcome. Or just to play another angle, maybe that idea of fatalism. Matt isn't changing the outcome. This isn't a what-if style scenario where Matt imagines Jack getting out of this situation and everybody lives happily ever after. No, no, this is Matt admitting fault. Missing the clues that were in front of him with Jack as he did with Karen. What this could be is Matt putting Daredevil on trial. And this scene has just become Exhibit A. He makes the victim sympathetic and sets up a damning narrative of a son who was negligent in his father's death. Whichever we are seeing, it's Matt's show and he will take his mind and us where it needs to go to find some kind of closure or some kind of penance. With that established, let's jump back into the story and examine the next segment to see where that journey leads. Jack's biggest fight yet comes at Madison Square Garden, facing off against Crusher Creel, and the match is brutal. In the middle of the fight, the fixer drops a bomb on Jack. He is to throw the fight. All of the wins have been fixed, and it's Jack's time to pay the piper. But with Matt in the audience, Jack puts up his dukes and wins the fight, crushing Creel despite the consequences. After the fight, Matt speaks to Jack in the locker room, and Jack says that he is through fighting. A man should leave the party when it is roaring. Shortly after Matt leaves, the fixer and his enforcer, Slade, arrive. Later that evening, as Matt and Foggy sleep at Jack's apartment, Matt is awakened by the sound of a gunshot, followed by shrill sirens. Matt leaps out of the window and down the fire escape and runs several blocks to find his fear for Jack founded. The boxer, Matt's father, lies dead on the sidewalk, surrounded by pistachio nuts. Even though his father can't hear it, Matt repeats that he loves him as the police and Foggy watch helplessly. And let's take out our handkerchiefs and wipe away the tears and clear out the lumps in our throats and talk about this section. To start off, this section begins at the fight itself, and that fight is held at Madison Square Garden. The location is important, at least to me, because Madison Square Garden is located just outside the southwest corner of Hell's Kitchen, at least as Hell's Kitchen is officially marked. That makes this so much more poetic since it means Jack did make it out of the kitchen and then fell like Icarus and his wax wings. Another continuity note is that Jack's opponent has been updated to Crusher Creel, a boxer that would become the Absorbing Man. I don't mind this. In fact, I really like the tie that it represents to the greater Marvel Universe. And of course, the fight goes how it goes. Jack defies the fixer and wins. Why does Jack choose this path? The consequences are pretty clear. He knows how the Fixer works, and that there are people above the Fixer who are more relentless. The usual line is that he's out to prove something to Matt about not quitting. It doesn't matter how many times you hit the mat, it's how many times you get back up. If we're being frank, that is bullshit. It's nice that Matt apparently thinks that. It must be a nice comfort, but it doesn't hold any real weight. Jack did this because of Jack's ego. After all, how can Jack teach Matt anything when Jack is dead? Because of this, Matt ends up abandoned and alone, not exactly father of the year material. 
The truth is, if we're being brutal, Jack likes the attention. He likes winning. He is validated by these events. This isn't for Matt, it's for Jack. Maybe Jack deserves the win. Maybe he didn't know the extent of the Fixer's retaliation, but he knew that this would not go well. Add to that another factor. I've mentioned before that Jack's choice may have been suicide by boxer. Jack may have been suffering from depression or self-hate. Maybe finding out that his recent climb up the boxing ranks was the work of the fixer and not Jack's own skill pushed him over that edge and gave him that final bit he needed. Validated ego, damaged ego, it doesn't matter. It is selfish and not a smart move. Jack stood to make money off of his fights, and I get a certain degree of integrity to that, but this wasn't the way to go. And that kind of sings on the page where Matt visits Jack in the locker room and Jack gives Matt his robe and says a man should leave the party when it's roaring. Jack's ego won't let him see the forest for the trees. The idea that Matt is awakened by the gunshot and rushes to Jack's side really splits me down the middle. On one hand, it's over the top. On the other, it's a successful melodrama and manages to tug at the heartstrings. It's the details that grab me. As Matt's eyes fly open, there's an image of Jack talking to Matt, a direct reference to the promise scene from Daredevil number one, and it's right there in the background. And then the color washes out of the backgrounds and the people around Matt. It seems to go into a gray with a muddy dark blue, and only Jack and Matt retain their color since that is everything in Matt's range of perception. In the original Daredevil origin, Jack is shot as he walks down the street and Matt is seen mourning him back at college. This scene does not contradict that, at least to the level where a no prize is needed. This scene seals the juices of this story into place, kind of like putting a steak to the flame, and luckily, it barely puts a toe over the line of overcooking it. For Matt to experience this, for him to touch Jack's lifeless body, and to lose that heartbeat that rattles inside his own body, puts a tactile piece to the proceedings. It's one thing to hear about something after the fact, and another to have a literal hand on the proceedings. The deciding factor for me was the idea of the heartbeat, that Matt could no longer feel Jack. So there is a physical assault to Matt's senses, a physical reaction to this, a tangibility. They took Jack, who is an extension on multiple levels of Matt's own body. That was a nice setup, and it helps nail this scene down. Also added to the mix with this moment, the pistachio nuts around Jack. These will be a bit of a chorus and take us to the next and final piece of this story, which takes place a short time later. The Fixer and Slade face their bail hearing with Matt and Foggy in attendance, but with no murder weapon, the two walk. Matt is outraged, but Foggy keeps him from being taken in for contempt of court, promising Matt that they will get their day in court. Time passes, Foggy and Matt graduate from law school and begin founding their own law firm, Nelson and Murdoch. But even with that passage of time and a great new beginning, Matt is still outraged that the legal system couldn't touch the Fixer and Slade. So later in Jack's apartment, Matt uses his senses and Jack's boxing robe to form a costume, more of an identity. And Daredevil Yellow Number 1 ends with Matt Murdock donning the costume in Billy Club of Daredevil for the very first time. Which means it's time to talk about this last leg of the issue and some overall thoughts. Starting with the bail hearing, something that is at once obvious, and then again something we haven't seen before. I guess it was always assumed that Fixer or Sweeney, whatever you want to call him, and Slade were simply never fingered for the crime, or maybe they were just well-connected enough that the cops looked the other way. But no, they were brought up on charges which are dismissed because of lack of evidence, and that enrages Matt, which is why this addition is so important. For Matt to take the steps that he takes... Taking on that vigilante identity, it isn't enough that these guys simply flew under the radar. 
Justice had to fail Matt to get him to that point. Justice, and more accurately, the justice system, is something that Matt puts a lot of faith in, and he relies on that faith in the system to keep him going at times. So when it fails him, in a direct and personal way, that wound is so deep, it's enough to push him to extremes. In a way, it's like a lover rejecting him, and he has to win that lover back. And that is why, even after some time has passed, Matt still can't let it go. Even after graduating as valedictorian from Columbia Law School, it's gnawing at his soul. There are two promises that Matt is holding himself to on the level of a religious oath. One is the promise to Jack to not solve problems with his fists and to use the books to enrich himself and make a better future. The other, as a lawyer, is to uphold the law and the sanctity of the system to ensure justice is achieved by this set of procedures and rules. Matt can't keep those promises and make sure that justice in its pure, unprocessed form is delivered for Jack. So it's back to Jack's apartment to piece together Matt's greatest piece of lawyering, Daredevil. Saying that the identity of Daredevil is a sneaky lawyer's trick is nothing new to this show. It allows Matt to skirt those promises on the premise that he is in the guise of somebody else. The irony is deepened by the fact that Sale depicts Matt in the same chair where Jack made Matt promise, sewing the costume together. And let's let's talk about the original look of Daredevil. Those who have been with me since the first episode will recall that I wasn't a big fan of the costume. I believe my words were it's hard to be intimidating when you look like a f- bumblebee. So what changed? Well, the irredeemable shag, he of the Fire and Water Podcast Network fame, made me take a second look at this through one of his Facebook trolls, one where he was wearing a Tim Sale Daredevil in yellow. And through that, Tim Sale's depiction made me take a second look. That is when I really took a bit to think about exactly what was happening in the context of the story. This identity and this costume were designed for a single purpose, and that was Avenging Jack. Matt is wearing Jack's colors, a retcon, but even in the original comics, he's wearing a boxer's training outfit to avenge, wait for it, a boxer. The mask, on top of keeping Matt's true identity a secret, also evokes a devil from the past or Jack's spirit, literally and symbolically, making things right. The letter D on the chest, while standing for Daredevil, also makes me think of Hester Prynne's Scarlet A from the book The Scarlet Letter, a direct branding of a specific sin. Likewise, Matt also weaponizes his cane, an external representation of his senses being turned into offensive weapons, his handicap becoming his strength, and finally taking the name Daredevil, the taunts that were thrown at him as a child and making those his mantra, owning the bullying and directing it back to the modern equivalent of those bullies. With the lone exception of Jack's robe being directly mixed into the costume, all of this is in the design itself from issue one. Damn it, Daredevil is just beautiful concept and was from the word go. All of that is why I wanted to give this time period a fair shake and visit it from another angle. Interesting note real quick on the taunt that the kids used, Daredevil. In Untold Tales of Spider-Man Annual 1997, Fred Hembeck brought us a tale entitled The Devil and Mrs. Parker. In it, a young Matt, pre-accident, attempts to help Aunt May avoid getting hit by a truck as she leaves her doctor's offices. A delayed Peter sees the attempt, which results with Matt landing on his ass and accuses Matt of trying some daredevil stunt. Some nearby kids glom onto the word and Matt is saddled with it. So the taunt and the name for his superhero identity come from Peter Parker by accident. And Peter felt terrible about that. But let's render a final verdict on Daredevil Yellow number one. This issue doesn't rewrite the past in the same way that Man Without Fear does, but it does re-examine it, especially focusing on character. It would be somewhat hypocritical of me to ignore the fact that it is decompressed. 
It's very decompressed storytelling, and while that causes some bumps in the series overall, this issue ended right at the exact spot it should. Sales art is gorgeous, but an acquired taste. It took me a while to get on board with his Superman and also his Batman, but it feels more natural for Daredevil. However, I have to say Matt Hollingsworth's colors are the MVP here, evoking strong emotions and showing us the height of subtle yet effective storytelling. And I always end this particular issue with a smile. Somehow it steps right up to the edge of being cheesy and overdone, but never quite takes the full leap into complete melodrama. It's also a nice trip into Matt's head, what he felt and saw during these early days, and dodges the obvious rehashing of familiar events, like Matt losing his sight and gaining his super senses. The minor additions to the original narrative actually managed to pin down some story elements, justifying the character's next steps. However, I think it skimped a bit on Jack Murdoch. What we saw of Jack beyond the original tale made him very affable, but they did not give enough breadcrumbs, even from Matt's point of view, as to what was really going on with Jack's life. It also manages to completely ignore Matt and Elektra, which seems fitting for Matt remembering his best time and watching it crumble to dust, but a reference would have helped. Loeb isn't obsessed with chronology, but it is reverential to the original origin, and he manages in this issue to tell his story within that context, and never fully contradicts it in this installment. The same may not be said for the following issues, but that's a discussion for another time. For this week, I remain happy with the issue, and that is a good thing. That also brings us to the end of another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, but not before a quick overdue look at the email sack. Emails can, of course, be sent to mail at daredevilpodcast.com, and this week's email comes courtesy of Gene Hendricks, blogger at thehammerstrikes.com, host or co-host of the Hammer Podcasts, the Quantum Cast, and Anime Freaks, all available right here at twotruefreaks.com. Gene's email has a subject line that reads, Perfectionist Parker. And Gene writes, Dave, forgive me for not writing in about Daredevil, but I just had to comment on the Peter Parker is a perfectionist revelation that you dropped on Sunday's show. You managed to put the character into focus for me for the first time in a long time. As a kid, I loved Spider-Man for his quips as much as his adventures. However, as I got older, I couldn't help but see Peter as a whiner. I have a supermodel famous TV actress for a wife, not to mention superpowers, but JJJ won't buy my pictures. Boo friggin' who. Now that I know that Peter is the kind of person that gets upset if he can't do something perfectly the first time he tries it, that makes much more sense. He truly believes that he can be all things to all people, and it's crushing when he fails. Wow, well done, sir. We're now even on the mind-blowing scale. As for the coverage of the Sin Eater issues, you are doing your normal fabulous job. Keep it up, Gene. Well, Gene, I want to say thank you. You actually put my mind at ease with this email. I was actually worried about those episodes. First of all, because I was putting Spider-Man in the front and center rather than Daredevil, which could be looked at as ignoring the premise of the show. But secondly, because I didn't feel that I had a handle on Spider-Man the same way that I do on Daredevil. So thank you for letting me know that I seem to get it right. Although I gotta say, I don't know if we're even on the mind-blowing scale. Gene basically dropped an idea on his blog regarding Star Wars continuity that I am still playing with. Then he dropped another idea involving Star Wars and Arthurian legend that had me breaking out my copy of La Morte de Arthur. And forgive me, I know my pronunciation has never been right on that. Either way, I'm glad we could trade these ideas and I recommend the episode of Gene's show 
the Hammer podcasts regarding the kick-ass movie Excalibur. Gene recorded that one with Luke Giaconetti of Earth Destruction Directive, also on Two Tree Freaks. Which reminds me, I just want to confirm that at this time, whichever feed you are subscribed to on iTunes, they are duplicate. So there's no need to move or resubscribe, so those will continue to update just as normal. However, feel free to leave a review there so it helps others find the show. So thank you to Gene, the podcast machine Hendrix, for his email, and next week there will be... I know the suspense is killing you. Another email from another emailer. But that puts a fork in this week's episode. Next week, it's a showdown at Fogwell's gym as Daredevil seeks justice for his father and catapults into action for the first time in Daredevil Yellow number two. That is in one week. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. You can find the show's home at twotruefreaks.com. Also, choose to like the network on Facebook. Simply search for Two True Freaks. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder. And you can email the show. The address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right, simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and keep the lights on at Two True Freaks at the same time. What a deal. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment Group. All rights reserved. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not draw profit from the references to the characters herein. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes. All rights lie with the copyright holder. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a production of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>